listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. Today I'd like to talk about Jesus' day in court, Jesus' day in court, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 22, open up in our Father's Word to Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 66. This is Jesus' day in court. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council, the Sanhedrin, and they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. So Jesus is answering affirmatively each time He's given the opportunity to recant, to backpedal, to retract, to set the record straight if he was not the Son of Man, if he was not the Son of God, if he was not the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, which is what all of those phrases are pointing toward. They're different ways of saying the same thing. Jesus was given every opportunity to do that. So he's also giving them every opportunity to make a right judgment about his identification, about who he is. And so they make their conclusion, they draw their conclusion, and we'll dig into that and the consequences of that and what that looked like in just a moment. But let's look now at verse 1 of chapter 23. Then after this, the whole company of them, the whole Sanhedrin, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ King. See, they're connecting the dots, and they're making the conclusion here. They're drawing the conclusion. And Pilate asked him, Are you the King of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Jesus not negating the statement, but then giving Pilate an opportunity to make his statement. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. They're being very shrewd because Pilate, as the Roman governor, would have been concerned about an uprising under his rule and under his reign. He was given the opportunity, he was given the charge to rule over Judea, where Jerusalem is. And so if an uprising occurred, if it was to happen on his watch, he would be in trouble with Caesar, okay? Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. Pilate's trying to get out of the responsibility. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time, because Herod would have been in charge of any kind of an uprising or a problem in that area. 
When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So here again, we see Jesus' reputation preceding him, the idea of Jesus being able to perform miraculous signs and wonders. Even Herod was familiar with that. So he, in verse 9, Herod questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Wow. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing. The translation could be shining or brilliant clothing. He sent him back to Pilate, and Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. And so the plot thickens. But here we have both Herod and Pilate pronouncing that they do not see anything within Jesus that would cause him to be somebody that they could honestly, with integrity, pronounce guilt over this man. The problem that both of these leaders have is to condemn an innocent man. To condemn a man who has been presented before them clearly with not enough evidence to convict. Now what's very interesting about this, look with me at Isaiah 53 verse 2. You get a little bit of insight when you understand that Isaiah 53 is a very overt, all of scripture points to Jesus, but this is a, a very overt passage of scripture, a very overt verse of scripture, Isaiah 53 2 in the context of all of Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about Jesus that helps us understand what did Jesus look like. If you were there as a fly on the wall, what would you have seen, what might you have seen in this progression? Let's look at Isaiah 53 verse 2. It says this, For he grew up before him like a young plant. This is a prophecy concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus. And like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. It's a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture. There was nothing in Jesus' outward appearance that would make you, make me, make them look twice. And in fact, the nature of the trial before this Sanhedrin would have required the one who's accused to dress in very modest, very humble clothing, very unattractive clothing. So Jesus would have been taken down a step even further in what he was wearing. The council of the Sanhedrin would have been 70 leaders in a semicircle. The president would be the high priest, the presiding high priest. It would also be comprised of former high priests and scribes, and Pharisees, and Sadducees, and prestigious leaders from all of the families from whom 
the high priests were selected. Do you understand who Jesus was standing before here when he was before the council, which is another word for the Sanhedrin? Imagine that there are 70 of these movers and shakers, all of the leaders of the leaders of the leaders of the nation of Israel. To put it another way, this is the supreme court of Israel. It's literally akin to the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And their rulings were binding not only for Judea, but for all Jews everywhere. So there's a lot that is at stake here. The identity of Jesus, whether or not the leaders of the nation of Israel are going to officially make a statement about Jesus one way or the other. And in the same way, think of it this way. When the United States Supreme Court makes a decision, they make a court for the United States. Even if you're living in Alaska... Whatever the Supreme Court rules is binding in Alaska. No matter where you are geographically, that ruling of the United States Supreme Court is binding. Well, in a similar way, the parallel breaks down. It's not totally exact one for one, but if we're to try to understand as Gentiles the Jewish thinking and the culture of the day, the Sanhedrin is the supreme ruling council for Jews everywhere. So their decision is going to be binding. The high priest is presiding. Former high priests are presiding. The Sadducees are there. The Pharisees are there. And that's a problem right there because the Sadducees are sad, you see. And the Pharisees aren't fair, you see, okay? The scribes are there. The legal advisors to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, yes, the interpreters of the Old Testament, and all of the prestigious people from whom were all of the high priests were selected. They're all there in a semicircle, and the accused would be standing there before them, dressed modestly to make the case, or to at least be given the opportunity to make the case, and the grilling begins. First with the accusations, the accusatory statements, and then with the statements for acquittal. That's the way the Sanhedrin operated, all right? So it's interesting, when we come down to verse 11 of chapter 23, Luke, I think, is assuming a few things from his readers, from his audience, that we would do well to understand today in the modern sense of things. Look with me at Luke 23 and verse 11. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt, treated Jesus with contempt, and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. You see the historicity here. The idea is that Jesus is now wearing shiny clothing, brilliant clothing, clothing that was in contrast to what he would have been required to wear when standing before the Sanhedrin. When you're standing before the Sanhedrin, you're being humiliated by what you're required to wear. And now Herod is adding insult to injury by mocking him since Herod, even though he wasn't actually ever coronated as a king, He's referred to in the Bible as King Herod, but he was never officially coronated as a king. So there's a bit of a rivalry that's going on. There's a bit of jealousy that's taking place here, and there's some mockery that's taking place as well, that he wants to give Jesus some clothing that would be fit for a king. And elsewhere in the scriptures we read that there's an instance where Herod comes out wearing clothing that was dazzling. And Josephus writes about this, about the death of Herod. 
that he came out and the people were praising him and that it was as if he was a god and because he didn't give glory to God, wearing this shiny outfit, the kingly garments, he fell dead, was stricken and judged by God himself. So remember, God always gets the last laugh and he who laughs last laughs best. And so Luke seems to be helping us understand here, 2,000 or so years after the fact, some of the difficulties that Jesus went through. We don't have all of the details of the trial, but we have the highlights. And now we understand a little bit more about the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and now his trial before Pontius Pilate and before Herod. Now, notice that both of those leaders in the Roman world, Herod and Pilate, both of them pronounced Jesus as innocent. Look with me at verse 4 of chapter 23. Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Maybe there was something in Jesus' appearance where Pilate looked at him. You know, we looked at Isaiah 53 too. Maybe there was something in Jesus' appearance that made Pilate scratch his head and said, are you kidding me? You're saying this guy's a king? This guy's going to be your Messiah? I find no basis for this guy. And then Herod does something very similar. Look what he does. When he says, verse 15 of chapter 23, neither did Herod find any charges against him that were worthy, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. I will therefore punish and release him. So who really ends up being the ones responsible for Jesus to be crucified? It's the crowd who is shouting, crucify him, give us Barabbas. And that crowd is made up of the leaders of the people. The high priest, the former high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, and all of the influential leaders of the nation of Israel. They are acting with an official statement the gavel coming down on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. So Israel's statement about Jesus is that they reject him as their savior, reject him as their Messiah, reject him as their king in fulfillment with Jesus' prophecy about that, in fulfillment with the Old Testament prophecies about that. Look with me at Luke chapter 9. This is important to understand that Jesus really was a prophet during his time on earth. Now we know he's an intercessor. We know that he's a mediator. We know that he's the risen king. We know that he's exalted at the right hand of God. But he acted continually with the ministry of a prophet, able to predict the future. And it's important to understand why is this happening in Luke 22 and Luke 23? Why did Jesus get condemned by the Sanhedrin? What is the significance of all of this? Well, in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18, look what we read here. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, Jesus, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God, or the Messiah, or the anointed one, the promised one from the Old Testament scriptures. Look at Jesus' response in verse 22. 
and Jesus, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, referring to himself. Remember, Daniel chapter 7, and all through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' favorite phrase and title for himself is the Son of Man. All right? Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Look at that. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. See the importance of applying the Bible every single day of our lives? See the importance of being able to discern what's happening in the world, on the world stage, and being able to keep the main thing, the main thing, which is every single day of your life, every single day of my life, the Christ follower is to follow Jesus Christ. And if we follow Jesus Christ, we will be like Jesus Christ in character. Every single day, we are to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. So Jesus, again, helping them understand where he's going and helping them understand and us understand where we need to go in terms of surrender to Jesus. It's always about surrender to Jesus. It's always about taking up the cross every single day. We don't get a holiday even on your Sabbath. Even on your day of rest, it's not a day to take a vacation from surrender to Jesus Christ. Every day we are to take up our cross, death to ourselves, so that the life of Christ might be manifest through us. And it's right here in Luke chapter 9 where Jesus says in verse 22, the Son of Man, meaning I, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. So why is this happening in Luke 22? Why is this happening in Luke 23? Why is Jesus now standing before the Sanhedrin? Because the guys that Jesus is standing before are the guys that Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 would turn him in, would rise up against him. Jesus is demonstrating, again, his ability to predict the future as the prophet of prophets, and now we're seeing his prediction come true. And it's important for you and for me, Bible-believing Christian, I know that sometimes you scratch your head and you shake your head and you sometimes wring your hands. I do too. If you don't have moments like that, you're not paying attention to what's happening in the world. Can we all breathe a sigh of relief and say thank you that I can identify with that too? But all of that needs to be mitigated or kept to a minimum, and it will if you understand that everything that Jesus predicted about himself and world events either was fulfilled in his lifetime or we have the assurance that it will be fulfilled, it is yet to be fulfilled because of Jesus' track record as we see in the scriptures. When Jesus says something's going to happen, it's going to go down as Jesus said it's going to happen. So you can bank on, you can build your life on, we can build our lives on the teachings of Jesus. 
He gave us enough predictions about the future that were fulfilled in his lifetime so that we can hold on to the predictions that he made in his lifetime that have not yet been fulfilled. So that hand-wringing and the nodding of the head or the shaking of the head and the scratching of the head needs to be mitigated and it will be mitigated if you're reading the Bible and looking to take up your cross daily and follow Jesus. This is now the opportunity that we're seeing in Luke 22 and 23, the opportunity for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders, all of the influential people to now have their day in court. And you better believe it, they were chomping at the bit Every time Jesus stumped them, every time Jesus turned the tables on them, whether it's the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection, that's why they were sad, you see. Or whether it was the Pharisees debating about whether or not there was a resurrection, Jesus turns the table on them and helps them to keep the main thing the main thing. You're in error because you don't know the power of God. Whether it was them the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the elders coming right up to the line and recognizing that Jesus had made a claim about himself that only the Messiah could make, that only the king could make, only the anointed one could make. And instead of coming up to that line and scratching their heads and saying, well, maybe you're him, they were so bent on opposing him, their hard hearts and their blind eyes and their deaf ears. But now it's their opportunity as they're wringing their hands with eager anticipation that now they got the opportunity. Now they have the opportunity to try Jesus and hopefully to put him to death. It's important to understand what's happening here. And you know, the thing that is absolutely frightening to me, very easy the longer we read the Bible to get away from this, to escape this. And that's why the longer you know Christ, the more you need to rediscover Jesus again and again and again. That, again, is the idea of every day taking up our cross and following Jesus. The longer we've had our Bibles around, the more familiar we are with our Bibles, the more in danger we are of making assumptions about ourselves and other people that are just not true. And once we start making assumptions about ourselves and other people that are not true, we begin to make assumptions about God in the process. We're no longer taking up our cross daily and following Jesus. And then this whole idea of following Jesus after all, you know what I mean. But here, it's important to understand what is taking place here is that you've got religious people who knew their Bible and didn't know their Savior. You've got the experts in the law, the scribes, those who could interpret the law and who were always there around Jesus to try to call him out on the carpet. Which commandment is the greatest, Jesus? You know we've had this debate and Jesus answers, the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. 
And it's the scribes who answer, great answer, teacher, you're right in saying that. Jesus is being tried by the religious leaders of the day, those who have the authority to speak on behalf of the nation of Israel. When Jesus returns, Israel will recognize him the way, in a way contrary to the way they denied him in the first place. And if you don't believe that, look at Romans chapter 11 when you have time. Look at the book of Revelation where you see God's people being raised up and recognizing Jesus. Look at the idea of the 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. They're the ones who accept Christ and are evangelizing in the book of Revelation. You know, it's very possible. This is what's scary and this is what's dangerous. And if you don't spend some time today contemplating this, you might be more Pharisaic than you realize. Because for me, as a senior pastor, I spend actually a lot of time thinking about this. Not as it pertains to the lives of other people, because that's easy. But as it might pertain in my life, as a senior pastor of a church, what if I know about Jesus and miss knowing Jesus on that journey? What if I simply become an expert in Bible knowledge and can quote verses of Scripture left and right and can mesmerize people with the knowledge of Scripture? You know, the Pharisees were pretty impressive. Sadducees, pretty impressive. Scribes, extremely impressive. The elders, extremely impressive. The high priest, extremely impressive. The former high priest, extremely impressive. But they were not impressed with Jesus when they should have been. Be very careful that you don't start to impress yourself as many of us have done in the evangelical community in the United States of America, with a knowledge of the Bible, you know, when you read the book of Revelation and you read about all the churches, there's only one of the churches that's in a good position. The odds are against you and me getting it as we get older in terms of length of time in Jesus Christ. It is possible to simply grow older in Jesus and not grow deeper in Jesus. This is a tragedy of tragedies of epic proportions that these guys who were leading the nation did not know the God who was going to lead their nation when he was standing right before them. They diligently studied the scriptures thinking that it was the scriptures that led them to eternal life. When it was Jesus, the word who became flesh, who alone can lead any individual to eternal life. Amen. See, now we need, to, we need to bridge the gap. If this happened to the leaders of the nation of Israel, with what I would say would be superior Bible knowledge to, to the, the elders and the pastors and the deacons in most churches in the United States of America. I'm including myself in that. These guys had the equivalent modern day terms of PhDs in Old Testament. They had it. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the elders, the high priest, together they were an undefeatable team. What a support mechanism. 
for a hard heart. If it was possible for them to miss Almighty God Himself in the flesh after watching Him for three years, listening to His teaching, observing the miraculous signs and wonders that were given for them to be able to recognize the Messiah. That's why Jesus performed the miraculous signs and wonders. And what about you? and me, who cannot see Jesus right now with our own eyes, cannot hear his teaching audibly with the actual vocal cords of Jesus. What about us who are 2,000 or so years removed from the miraculous signs and wonders that Jesus performed at will? I don't think it's too great a statement to say that our whole country needs a bath. Our whole country, the United States of America, needs to rediscover biblical repentance. Every single one of us. Whether you identify as a progressive Christian or a conservative Christian or anything in between, every single one of us needs to understand the acute danger of becoming a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a scribe, or a person of position without submission. What might happen in this nation if the pastors and the elders and the deacons of all the churches around this nation really took seriously what Jesus is saying when he says, Take up your cross daily and follow me. What might happen in the United States of America if everyone who says that they are following Christ or a Christ follower actually was following to such a degree that they didn't have to tell you they were following Jesus? If you've got to tell somebody you're a Christ follower, if I've got to tell somebody I'm a Christ follower, there might be something wrong with the distance between me and Jesus. There is an acute danger for everybody, every single one of us. The older you are in Jesus, the more at risk you are of missing him when he shows up. And I can guarantee you that Jesus wants to show up in your life. I can guarantee you that Jesus wants to show up in every single church that's trying to follow Jesus more than all the churches and the whole planet combined have passion for. I can guarantee you that the world today needs to see less profession and more surrender to Jesus. And if that's going to happen, it needs to happen with you. And it needs to happen with me. And we need to stop waiting for somebody else to get up and follow Jesus. We need to stop waiting for somebody else to follow Jesus. How about if you follow Jesus? How about if I follow Jesus? How about if we let Jesus immerse us in the bath of his cleansing power that is courtesy when we repent? Courtesy of every day picking up our cross and following Jesus. This country needs a bath. 
and the country is made up of people just like you and me. And if not now, then when? If not you, then who? The danger is that as more time passes, we could simply know about Jesus and simply know about the Bible and miss Jesus at a crucial juncture in our lives when we need to see him and hear him and follow him more than ever. This is a warning for you, and it's a warning for me, and it's an encouragement for you, and it's an encouragement for me. To build your faith, lift your Bible. To follow Jesus, read the Bible in such a way that you're bent on it. You're heaven bent on putting into action whatever you read in the Bible. And you know what? Your revival will be underway. Your revival, your spiritual awakening, your renewal, your transformation will be underway. Wow. And notice here in Luke chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. There's a subversion that's taking place here. There's a perversion. And there's talk about a coronation that's taking place here. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation. That's the subversion and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. That's the idea of paying taxes to Caesar. That's a perversion, actually, of what Jesus taught, as we'll look at in a second, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. That's the idea of the coronation. So they're, they're falsely accusing Jesus, and they're twisting the truth about Jesus to try to use it against him when they should have submitted and surrendered to him. Now look with me, one of the charges here, look with me at Luke chapter 20. One of the charges here is that he's not giving tribute or honor to Caesar. In Luke 20, 19, here's the actual account. People are always trying to put words in Jesus' mouth. They're always trying to put words in Jesus' mouth. And if you're a Christ follower, and you're trying to teach and follow the, the teachings of Jesus and let them be known, people are going to put words in your mouth too. Try to take your words and twist them against you. I know that because I have firsthand experience with that. And if you do that on the platform that God has given you, try to teach and preach and represent Jesus well, get used to it. There are going to be people who twist your words, try to use them against you. And their false statement about Jesus trying to Resist giving honor to Caesar is revealed right here in Luke 20, verse 19. The scribes, notice who the players are, the chief priests, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him and at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. See, you always see Jesus speaking the truth when the truth needed to be spoken. Don't let anybody tell you that Jesus didn't judge. He did judge. He was judging the Pharisees, judging the Sadducees, judging the scribes, judging the chief priest. Why was he doing that? Because they were wrong. And so in this politically correct world in which we live, where everybody wants to try to put words in your mouth and recreate Jesus in their own image, don't let anybody tell you because it's not true that Jesus didn't judge. He absolutely did judge. 
He judged repeatedly. His very teaching, by teaching the truth to a world of lying people, to a a bunch of deceivers, that by nature is judging. And we see in Luke 23 that they're telling a lie about Jesus. Look at verse 20 in Luke 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality but truly teach the way of God. There's a couple phrases we could use for that kind of behavior. They're not being sincere at all. They're doing what they always did. They were deceiving and lying and conniving to try to trap him. So they ask in verse 22, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, don't you love Jesus? Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Jesus again, taking them from where they are to where they need to be. That's what he does in your life and mine. That's the objective of the Son of Man, the Son of God in your life and mine, to take us from our limited understanding what we think is the issue is not often the issue. The real issue is always and only surrender to Jesus Christ. The real issue in your life that you think you're facing or the issue in your life that you're facing that you think is the issue is not the real issue. Unless you understand that what is at stake in every single decision you're making as you daily take up your cross and follow Jesus has to deal with whether or not you will surrender to Jesus and invite his glory to be manifest in your life. If you put every decision you make through that filter, you'll be well on your way to being an actual Christ follower. The irony of ironies is that these leaders of leaders, the cream of the crop, whom Jesus is standing before, who should have been able to recognize him, who were studying the scriptures and should have known about the Messiah, they missed Jesus when they should have, should have been obvious that Jesus was right there in their midst. But it is all taking place, all happening in accordance with Jesus' prediction so that the ultimate fulfillment would come true, so that Jesus would actually go to the cross for you and for me and make atonement for the forgiveness of sin. That was the objective of Jesus Christ, and ain't nobody, ain't nothing, nowhere, nohow, getting in the way of Jesus reaching out to you with his love and dealing handedly and with finality with your sin and with mine. And so what we see in this passage of Scripture is exactly that. Jesus predicting, here's how it's going to go down, fellas. And now we see Jesus' day in court. We see it unfolding exactly the way Jesus said, which although painful for Jesus, took care of the greatest pain that you and I would ever and could ever experience, which would otherwise be Eternal separation from God. Yes, Jesus hates sin, and he loves the sinner. And this story, as it unfolds, should convince us again 
that God means what he says, says what he means. And there's nothing that can separate you and me, the Christ follower, from the love of God that surpasses human intellectual insight. Is it wrong of me to ask you if you believe that God is an awesome God? Do we not have an awesome Savior, Advocate, King in Jesus Christ? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.